They say it only takes 40 days to create a habit. Interestingly enough, it takes... Here, in the middle of February, most of us decide to give up on our New Year's resolutions. In fact, there's a day called the Fitness Cliff when most of us do. Gold's Gym, Foursquare, and a couple other people have studied New Year's resolutions and found the exact day when people give up. The day that people stop going to the gym and start eating fast food is the second Friday in February. The 40th day of 2018. I have a hunch that a lot of our spiritual resolutions died at about the same time. New Year's for a Christian means promising to pray more, have longer quiet times, and read the Bible in one year. Those resolutions don't make any kind of lasting change. Once a year we question our walks, our direction in life. But why is it that we can't make any real change? How is your walk? That question is so banal and so vague, it bothers me when people ask it. And it's not totally a fair question, because it can mean so many different things. I mean, plainly, a Christian walk is a group of people who love Jesus going on a hike. But when we talk about our walks, we're summing up our whole lives into a small, phrase. On top of that, a question so broad and so big demands an equally broad, general, and vague answer. It's like when someone asks how you are in a crowded coffee shop, and between all the joys, struggles, doubts, and pain in your life, you simply say, fine, how are you? But if we're talking about our relationship with God, can we really just say, oh, uh, I'm fine? Granted, I don't think we exactly do. We talk about how we feel. We feel like we're doing well. We feel like we're in a good spot. Or we feel stuck or far from God. We think the right way to answer that question is to describe our immediate emotive state and apply that to our spirituality. The danger of that vagary is that we never really get at what's going on in our lives. Instead of getting into the difficult work of self-evaluation, holy conviction, and real change, we settle for an emotive spirituality defined by feelings and circumstance. And the result is we keep hitting not fitness cliffs, but Jesus cliffs, moments when habits fall away. So let's cut the vagary and get specific. What is a Christian walk? Where are we going? And how do we get there? This is Christianese, episode number 16, My Walk. The image of spirituality as a walk or a journey is very biblical. People in ancient times walked everywhere they went as a means of travel. It's how Hebrews climbed the rocky paths leading up to Jerusalem to get to the temple of God where they worshipped. They literally had to walk to get to the presence of God. So it wasn't a far leap to use travel as an image for spirituality. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to walk by and a light to illuminate my path. And later on in that chapter, in verse 133, Direct my steps by your word. Do not let any sin dominate me. For the psalmist, life is a journey, and every step of that journey is important. It's not just the end that matters, but the way that he gets from point A to point B. In other words, our faith is not just about getting to heaven. Sure, that's part of it, but God intends for us to have purposeful lives before we get there. That's why the author of Hebrews writes, Get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and run with endurance the race set out before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The goal of the Christian life is Jesus-focused. It's not just that what Jesus did gets you to heaven, but because of the cross, our whole lives are focused towards him. We make decisions and live in such a way that our lives point towards Christ. In Galatians, Paul writes the most famous verse related to the walk. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Your life as a Christian is walking with the Spirit of God on a path the Father called you to, in which the focus is to become more like Christ. So when we ask about each other's walks, as bothersome and buzzwordy as it may sound, we are truly asking something very biblical and incisive, even if we don't mean to. We're asking, does your life look more like Jesus or more like who you were before Christ. That takes some evaluation. And it's not navel-gazing over espresso. I mean really taking stock of your life. What do we daydream about? What do we really want more than anything else? What excites us? What causes us stress? Not only what are our habitual sins, but why do we keep running back to them? What is really driving us? That kind of specificity takes thoughtfulness and requires, no, demands community. It takes true friends to show you your blind spots, the habits you didn't even know you had. And then it requires action, replacing our old habits with new habits pointed to and fulfilled by Christ. There are three illustrations that I think will help us understand how to do this. In the New Testament, Christian living is often related to athletics, the Olympics. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that all runners in the stadium compete, but only one receives the prize? So run to win. Each competitor must exercise self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So do not run uncertainly or box like one who hits the air. Instead, I subdue my body and make it my slave, so that after preaching to others... I myself will not be disqualified. Athletes train purposefully. They discipline themselves, not to prove that they're athletes, but to become better. For someone who knows Jesus, who is a Christian in spirit and in truth, 
Spiritual effort and discipline is a response to God's love, not the means to get it. But because God has shown us love, demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us, we respond to him. We're not proving that we're athletes. We're growing, and we're not perfect. And that's why Philippians 3.16, Paul writes, Nevertheless, let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. Think about that. The Christian lives up to the standard they've already attained. Legalism is the idea that God will love us more if we behave correctly, or that good behavior earns us good gifts. Grace says that God has already given us the greatest gift, so that in loving response to that gift, we run. That's the heart behind Paul's emotional goodbye to Timothy. He writes, I'm already being poured out as an offering, and the time for me to depart is at hand. I've competed well. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to me on that day, and not only me, but to all who have set their affection on his appearing. Your spiritual life, your walk, takes effort, and a lot of it. Our lives should be purposeful, getting rid of the sin that entangles us so that we might press into God even more. But maybe you're not athletic, and the whole sports thing doesn't really connect with you. Well, Christian living is also a lot like music. Every band is a kind of community in which each part plays a specific role, and together they create a coherent whole. Every musician has to know their role, when and how to play their instrument, and when to support someone else rather than be the focal point. But that kind of band, who knows each other and can build each other up, doesn't just happen. Bad music is easy to make. Good music takes a lifetime. Musicians have to know scales, the way notes relate to one another, be able to keep time and play within a structure. Music, yes, is an art, but it's also very much a science. Watch. First, we'll need a string. Stretch it good and tight. Plunk it. Now divide in half. Plunk again. You see? It's the same tone, one octave higher. Pythagoras discovered the octave had a ratio of two to one. With simple fractions, he got this. And from this harmony in numbers developed the musical scale of today. But it's not just the creation of music and the scales that we have today that was scientific. In order to master music, you have to think mathematically. And great musicians never stop learning. John Coltrane is considered one of the masters of jazz music. But what made him great was his constant study, practice, and collaboration. According to legendary producer Quincy Jones, Coltrane carried around a book with him. Nicholas Slominski's Thesaurus of Scales and Melodic Patterns. He carried it around, reading every chance he got, until the pages started to fall out. 
His music seems effortless, but it's because he learned the 12-tone structure, heptatonic scales, pentatonic scales, semitones, ditones, sesquiquadratones, triads, 12 tones and four mutually exclusive triads. All of this is math. We often think of music as purely emotional, and that definitely is a part of it. But the emotion that's made possible in music is created by a solid foundation of mathematics. On that structured, seemingly cold foundation, John Coltrane wrote one of the greatest works of jazz music, A Love Supreme. It's an immense act of technical genius and praise. Coltrane saw it as an outpouring of his heart to God. He breaks the piece down into four movements called Acknowledgement, Resolutions, Pursuance, and Psalms. Throughout the liner notes, one phrase is repeated, All glory to God. Despite its popularity, Coltrane only played it once publicly in its entirety. And after 32 minutes of pouring himself out, he stepped off stage and said Nunc Dimittis, Simeon's words from Luke 2 after he had seen the promised Messiah. It means, I can now die happy. We typically think of music as purely emotive, but its power is built on the bedrock of mathematics. In the same way, our faiths can be emotional, but that emotion is built on truth, affection for God, and actively giving our lives to know and love God. It's a love supreme. Acknowledgement. Resolution. Pursuance. Feelings come and go, but it requires truth to know what to make of those feelings, to know if they are true or drawing us from God. So we have to know the truth. We have to study the Bible, apply it, and live it out. That leads to a life of praise, a life where at the end we can say nunc dimittis. I'll end with one more illustration. And like Coltrane's love supreme, it's Psalms. Jerusalem sits on a hilltop, and when Israelites would ascend that hill to make their sacrifices and worship at the temple, they would sing Psalms 120 through 134 the Psalms of Ascent. They encompassed a range of emotions expressing awe and wonder, excitement, joy, pain, and commitment to God. They say things like, In my distress I cried out to the Lord, and He answered me. Look up towards the hills, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be upended and will endure forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, now and forevermore. From the deep water I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, listen to me. Pay attention to my plea for mercy. If you, O Lord, were to keep track of sins, O Lord, who could stand before you? But you are willing to forgive so that you might be honored. 
I rely on the Lord. I rely on him with my whole being. I wait for his assuring word. I yearn for the Lord more than watchmen yearn for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord exhibits loyal love and is more than willing to deliver. These songs are authentic. They reflect the hearts of the people. They're not all cheerful songs, but they end in hope. As the worshipers of God went along their way, they sought the Lord, and they did so according to His revealed truth. It took effort and determination, but they continued to walk. So how do we make real change in our life? By faith. Not necessarily praying 10 minutes more a day or reading the Bible in one year, but every day taking small steps towards God, seeking every day to grow in small ways, taking every opportunity to point our thoughts, our hearts, and our actions towards Christ. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.